What does that mean for training? It means that it is complex. It means that we've got to try to do the impossible and make them good at everything. Now, if you can't make them good at everything, make them not bad at everything. You've got to remember that we're not trying to train the fastest runner. We're not trying to train the strongest lifter. Who cares if they can deadlift five more kilograms? If trying to get them to that point means they lose all these other physical parameters that are going to be required of them. If it means you're going to increase their risk of injury exponentially. All right, so again, it, it becomes very complex. It also means, and you know, this is why I think the Australian Defence Force, Singapore, the Singapore Army, holy hell, you want to talk about a physical training program? See what those guys are doing. Wow. Um, or, you know, you're not the UK, where you actually have people's job, soldiers who are trained, who have been soldiers, who are now trained to train the physical requirements of other soldiers. They understand what it's like when, you know what? Hey, guys, we've got this beautifully paradise program. This is what you're coming in to do. But you've got the Queen's Birthday Parade. You're now going to be spending eight hours a day on the drill square for the next five days. So there goes your beautifully paradise structured program out the window. Uh, welcome to another episode. This one. So, no, this is not our first foreign guest. This is our first Australian guest. Uh, somebody who's who's uh, pretty well known in the tactical space. Somebody who's done a lot of research. Uh, somebody who's going to be very interesting to talk to. Alex, who's the lucky guest? Our guest today is Professor Rob Orr. He joined the Australian Army in 1989 as an infantryman before transferring to the physical training instructor stream. Uh, during his 10 years as a PTI, he led physical training programs and courses, not just for fellow Australian Army personnel, but across the Australian Defense Forces and several in foreign defense forces. He then transferred to physiotherapy, which is what the rest of the world calls physical therapy, where his role focused on primarily the clinical rehabilitation of service members, along with some research and program management kind of stuff. His career in this capacity culminated with serving as the human performance officer for their special operations command, but he continues to serve in the Australian Army Reserve. So his his kind of main gig at the moment is as the director of the tactical research unit at Bond University, uh, as we mentioned, in Australia. They do a lot of international collaborations. They do research, consultancy, education services mostly with tactical professions around the globe. So if you've read any of his work, which, as we mentioned, is all over the place, um, they focus on physical conditioning, reconditioning, rehabilitation, injury prevention. They do military. They do law, and law enforcement, protective services, a ton of load carriage research, which I think is how most people know Rob's name. He's sort of the, the quote-unquote ruck guy. Um, not only do they focus on the Australian military, and he talks about this a little bit, they also work with Singapore, uh, the UK, the US. Uh, he's, he's been at TSAC. So he's been around the block, like we mentioned. He's a name that I think most folks know. Um, and we had a blast talking to him. So part of the timing for bringing him on is that he was just named the Tactical Strength and Conditioning Professional of the Year by the NSCA. No big deal. No big um, deal. Yeah, little little bit of a big deal. Um, <laughs> but is that his, that's not his first time. Is this his first time? I think it's his first time for this particular uh, award. But what I was about to say is that we we literally do not have time to go through the guy's full list of accolades. 
Um, he actually, he had to leave directly from TSEC and hustle back to Australia to accept an entirely different major award for his contributions there. Um, the guys pulled in like several million dollars in external research funding. He has over 200 peer reviewed publications to his name, and that's not counting the other several hundred not peer reviewed like technical reports and things like that. He's presented at over 200 conferences. And these, these recent two awards he's picked up in just the last couple of weeks add to the dozens of both professional and research awards he's received over the course of his career. The guy has done a lot for the, the tactical human performance space. Yeah, and he also happens to be really cool. So we had a blast. We kind of go all over the place with this one, but it was intentional and we do touch on a lot of, I think, relevant and important topics. So enjoy. You also said something about, you know, if, if you ask those sort of questions, we'll just mic drop and walk out, you know, that's sort of about <laughs> personality. And, that is you know, totally like, fine. fine. Listen, he, I don't know if Alex put it this bluntly, but we have no idea what we're doing with this podcast. People just happen to listen to it. So it's a great podcast. Thank you. I love the name. Well, that's his fault. He created that one. But what's funny too, I have my like notebook next to me. It was like a, a year ago, I was trying to come up with like good names for the page and I couldn't come up with any good ones. So I made Mops and Moe's as like a placeholder name, figuring I'd come up with something good later and people like it. So we're, we're rolling with it. Still hasn't changed. Rob, I have got to know, cause we were, Alex and I were kind of reading through your bio before this started. What is a human performance officer? Okay. So human performance officer was actually sort of like a position that was made for me initially class uh where they they brought me into well because i was i was a unicorn um <laughs> i was a, a an army physical training instructor and what they then tried to do is all our in the in the australian army uh we train our own physical training instructors and they're all service personnel so typically you go away in the army and you do a four-week combat fitness leader course you have to be the top instructor on that course and then you go away and do the six-month army physical training instructors course but it's actually a tri-service course. So it's Army, Navy, and Air Force, all on the six-month course together. So we do that. But all our PTIs, physical training instructors, are non-commissioned ranks. So they wanted to try put a rank structure in and have officers that were PTIs. So currently what we do have is we have therapeutic officers who are our uniformed physiotherapists. So the idea was to take PTIs and then do um, advanced training with them so they go away to civil schooling and they do a physiotherapy degree and then they come back and they become the officers for the PT stream. So army paid for me to go away and then do my physio degree. There were two of us that were selected. I was the only one that got through, but then the whole plan fell apart. <laughs> so um, they said, right, well, we've got you here. So I became a uniform physiotherapist and just worked as a physiotherapist until we started to notice a high number of injuries. And one of the commanders at one of the bases who I'd worked with before said, look, we've got this high number of injuries, uh, come over and have a look at them. So when I wasn't actually treating patients, I went over, started to put together a report. The report was accepted, did quite well. And then from there, they started saying, well, okay, how about you come do a report for us? And they created a position at the Royal Military College for me to go in and literally do that. One of the directors of military arts who was at the college at the time, then went over to uh, Special Operations Command and when he found out I was coming back into country, because I was out of country at the time, when he found out I was coming back into country, he said, look, how about you come work at SOCOM and do that? So that's sort of how the human performance officer position came and went. 
It's now got similar sort of sprinklings, but yeah, that, that was the, the creation of it. <laughs> Just to parse out one piece of that, you mentioned like a four week course. And then if you do well enough in that, you go to a six month course. Does the four week course produce guys who do it as like an additional duty? And then the six month course produces people who do it full time. How does that work? It, you nailed it. Bang on. So yeah, you go away, you do the uh, four week course. Uh, you go back to your unit, you run physical training. So all the physical training at units is supposed to have been done by qualified combat fitness leaders only. As, as the basis where possible. Obviously, there's not enough combat fitness leaders to service the entire army, but we'll try. Uh, and then if, you, if you've done well enough, you can be temporarily just TDY, temporary duty uh, attachment to the gymnasium itself, the area gymnasium, and you work under the physical trainers there for you know, a couple of months before you go away and do your six-month course. And then, uh, yeah, you core transfer into ECN 185, physical training instructor, and that is your primary job then. I have so many questions about that structure because I know like with the army specifically here in the States, they've talked about creating an MOS for in our case, H2F, but like for your guys. So once you have that designator, are you then embedded into like a unit or are you kind of attached to the installation and the units that are on that installation use those instructors, if that makes sense? Yeah. A great question. Cause actually it's both. And it also depends on the flavor at the time. So quite often they will have some units uh, where they have a physical training instructor specifically for those units. That's very rare now. What we do normally have is we call them uh, area assets. So when they're on a base, you may have you know anywhere between eight to 12, if you're lucky, physical training instructors for the entire base. And normally some of those physical training instructors will be allocated to certain units. That makes sense. They'll be located at the gymnasium. Uh, where all the physical training will get done, or they'll go from the gymnasium out to the units, but they will be the, the point of call for all physical training information uh, for that unit and for their combat fitness leaders as well. So if the combat fitness leader from a specific unit uh, wants to get more equipment, wants to hire stuff, wants somebody to look over their plan, they'll speak to that unit's physical training instructor. So do those guys, and I know we're, we're sort of going down a rabbit hole with this, but I think it's fascinating because again, having gone to graduate school in the UK, I was exposed to their model, which had the physical training instructor piece of it. So now seeing the army try to do the same thing is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Is there some central authority that's like dictating what right looks like in terms of like training and programming and that sort of thing? Or do these guys kind of map it to the groups that they work with? Yeah. So there is a basic template and uh, what happens is, when you qualify as a physical training instructor, typically 99% of the time, your first posting is to a training establishment and you use what we call the PT template. So your t uh, PT template typically starts with a 12 minute warm up, where you go through uh, a general warm up, then you move into a specific warm up. You then have anywhere between 12 to 24 to 36 minutes to run the main group session, depending on what you're doing. And then you have a four minute cool down generally. So there's a template. And then, of course, you've got all the different types of basic classes, introductory classes that you'll run. So it could be a circuit it could with a medicine ball. It could be rifle exercises. It could be combat game form and uh, exercises. It could be a load carriage session. It could be intervals. It could be anything. But you've got that basic template and you hone and fine tune those skills. Because the other good thing about going to a training establishment is normally you'll come under a sergeant PTI who will then mentor you. Then once you've got that template, and you've got the knowledge, then you normally go out to the different units. You'll get another posting to an operational unit and you'll take all that knowledge and those skills and you adapt it to your environment. And then, so that's just, but that is your designator for your career in the military. You are a physical, okay. Hmm. Yep. 
Uh, it's ECN one eight five for Army. Yeah. So I'll add a layer to it. So you still serve in the Army Reserve, correct? I do. Yep. How well does that stuff work in that scenario where you don't have like face to face contact with people that frequently? Yeah, look, it's really interesting. The work that I'm doing with the reserves is mostly now uh, human performance stuff. But I do know some other army physical training instructors. And basically when they have a reserve, because we've got more reserve units all over the place, they'll go out and they'll do work with the reserve units. So they might go in and run all their fitness tests. They might go in and run physical training for them. But then again, because they're also qualified as military instructors, they might go out and run weapon training or drill because they, you know, even though they're physical training instructors, they are generally military instructors. So they've got those instructional skills, which they do through their combat fitness leader course, which they do through their PTI course. But at the same time, parallel to that, they do through their normal army courses. So to be an army physical training instructor, the rank you march out on is corporal, which means you must've done your subject one for corporal course, where you learn more about command and control. So you get those command instructor skills as part of your corporal training as well, which means you can literally go into any unit and do military instruction. So your your reserve units will utilize nearby active unit personnel to get some of that training and get some of those resources then? They may, or they may not have that option available and just use reserve forces. So it depends on where they are, how remote they are, and what's coming up, what operations they have, et cetera. Yeah, I think we see a lot of a lot of really similar challenges as we've tried to like update our fitness tests. Some of the biggest pushback and, and challenge for that has come from reserve component people who don't feel like they have access to the resources necessary to train appropriately and things like that. So, yeah. Uh, and you're right. It's not, and it's not only that, it's also the, the equipment. Mm-hmm. I don't know about over there, but typically we, we find that our reserve forces tend to get the oldest equipment. I think Quite often, reserve units, they end up with whatever equipment's left, obviously, because all the new equipment needs to go to the front end, those soldiers that are deploying. Um, So typically, training units and reserve units end up with everything that's been kept in stock. And then just before they go on deployment, they'll do a a pre-deployment cycle and they'll get all the updated equipment. It's fairly standard everywhere. Do you, how long, I mean, I guess this is a pretty straightforward question. How long has this model been in place within you guys' Department of Defense or Ministry of Defense? Sure. Well, uh, believe it or not, the original physical training sort of built from the, the model of the British military. But the tri-service element of the physical training course and all that was really built around 1989. Uh, and as it became tri-service, it had to come under a single command. So it came actually under Naval Training Command, even though you have your specific combat fitness leader course, which is Army. Uh, it still comes under the remit of Naval Training Command. Um, although it is guarded heavily by army. Um, so yeah, that's more or less when it came into fruition into the current model that we have at the moment. And the reason I ask that is because one thing we've talked about a lot with a lot of different people is this kind of paradigm of tactical human performance. And the military here has had something or another in place for forever. I mean, we have master fitness trainers and that sort of thing, but what you guys seem to have done is kind of professionalize humor performance in the sense that somebody can do that as their career. So I, what I'm interested in getting at with this question particularly is, do you think or do you find that through that period of instruction, through trial and error, through the programming that you guys put out, have you sort of arrived at a quote unquote tactical training 
model or do you think that they're still taking things i guess in you guys's case from like field sport from rugby from that sort of space and then dumping it onto these tactical guys because what we see is coaches who may mean the best but they're still taking bits and pieces from other sports and trying to make it work for people in camouflage and i think it's just kind of missing the mark you're 100 percent right look and it's not missing the mark by a small bit either it is a chasm uh, and i think it's taking military combat fitness the wrong way it's yeah uh, we could go on for hours about that but i guess one of Please our biggest challenges, <laughs> one of our biggest challenges and it's, it's look it's happened to our physical training instructors as well when it first came under naval training command i was actually posted to the school uh, as an instructor uh, in 1987 and 88 and at that stage they were chasing qualifications so mm-hmm. what could happen is you could leave you know, after 20 years of service as an army physical training instructor, and you wouldn't be able to go down to your local gym and take a class. So what they started to do was map the uh, military courses to civilian qualifications. So we're trying to take a beautiful square peg and then bastardize it and rip it up and stick it into a round hole. And unfortunately, it, it then meant that a lot of our training started to follow the general fitness industry. So this was very fitness industry driven. Uh, And unfortunately, as you know, the fitness industry is predominantly around aesthetics, not performance. We started to then realize that this probably wasn't the best way to go in the early 2000s and started to follow a sporting model because sports is about performance. And I think now, and I only think it's been in the last couple of years, we've started to realize that the sporting model, similar to the fitness model, is trying to stick a, a square peg in a round hole. What you need is something unique. Just like you know, performance coaching for sport is totally different to fitness, what we need is something totally bespoke and specific to the tactical environment. It is unique. You cannot, you cannot take sports and stick it in this environment. It doesn't work. It'll be maybe a 60-70% fit, but the critical 1%ers, 2%ers, 5%ers, which are tactical specific, are where our holes will be. What do you think? Those are my personal thoughts. No, no, because this, I mean, this is like the most fascinating. This is the reason we started this whole podcast in the first place, because in your mind, because you've, I mean, you've been around the field of tactical research now for ages. Like, what do you think is that unique piece? Is it the load carriage element, capacity element, the, the, I mean, we talk about periodization on here and how that kind of falls short, like go crazy on that thought. What makes it unique is that it is so atypical that, Look, take a sporting team, okay? So we'll just take a sporting team and we'll take a, a tactical unit. Sporting team, all right, everybody has their designated roles that for that sport that has a set of rules that doesn't change. The physical requirement is based on their one sport, one activity that they do over and over and over and over again. Take a tactical uh, professional, all right, tactical personnel, army soldier, their job tasks and duties will change constantly they may need to do a long-range patrol they may need to do fire movement they may need to do vital asset protection they may be urban they may be jungle they may be a high altitude constantly changing their requirement so there isn't one set of bespoke requirement you play uh center back in soccer i know your job i've mapped it i know exactly what you're going to do i know how to condition you Army soldier, well, you might do this today, but then you might do that tomorrow. And then the day after that, you might do this. And then we might do a deployment. And then you might go on leave. And then you might come back and do X. 
right? Then you've got all these technical skills that you've got to learn. You've got to learn how to operate the radio, combat first aid, you know, all your different weapon systems, laws of armed conflict, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got a team that has a set confined parameters. Even their opposition is matched to be competitive. You know, it's, it's, it's not force on mismatch here where you, you know, typically you never go into a situation where if you're going to assault somebody, you're going to be the inferior force. It doesn't happen. So typically when you meet your opponent, they're going to try force overmatch you in a big way, whether it be through the weapon systems, whether it be through sheer numbers, who the hell knows. But there are no set rules. They could have 100 against your one. They're not going to stop and say, oh, it's not fair. Hang on, we'll take 99 <laughs> of our players off, you know, and here we go. So there are no rules there in terms of umpires, referees. So, you know, oh, that was a bad tackle. Stop. That's not fair. That, that doesn't exist. Then you've got the complexities at the, at the very end here. Somebody may need to make that decision to take a life where you actually have to consciously remove somebody's soul from their body. That you do not get in sport. That amount of pressure you do not get in sport. The, the level of failure here is catastrophic if something goes wrong. It's not just championship points. It's not, oh, geez, we lost. We'll come back next year. This is, you know, serious uh, permanent disabilities. This is mortality. This is carrying a coffin. The risk of failure, there, there is no comparison to it. Uh, and then, of course, the environments. There's no beautiful, pristine pitch that's being created for us with these beautiful lines on it. Oh, look, you know, it's been raining too much. We better call the game off. <laughs> Every day, different environments. It could be hot. It could be cold. It, you know, um, you could be going across undulating terrain. You could be going across grass. You could be going across walking down a bitumen road. You could be walking up the side of a mountain. These physical requirements and environments that we want to stick these personnel in are incredibly complex but worse, they're not only complex, they're constantly changing. How do you condition somebody for that? Well, you need strength now, and it might be relative strength now, but you'll need absolute strength later. But, oh, by the way, you need endurance, and, oh, you need to be agile, and you need to have good change of direction speed. Oh, but you need to be able to just put a pack on your back and hump in a straight line for a couple of hours. You know, this is what we're talking about. And then look at a professional athlete. What's their lifespan? On average, four to six years. Tactical professional, this is somebody's job for 20, 30 years, 40 years. And we can't afford to lose that operational experience. So, again, we've got to think about when we condition someone, not for that one championship game, but how good this person is going to be, how capable they're going to be in 20 years when they've got all this key occupational experience, which they can pass on, which can save lives. What is, I know this is like a million dollar question, but I'll, I'll keep it simple. What does that mean for training? What does that mean for training? It means that it is complex. It means that we've got to try to do the impossible and make them good at everything. Now, if you can't make them good at everything, make them not bad at everything. You've got to remember that we're not trying to train the fastest runner. We're not trying to train the strongest lifter. Who cares if they can deadlift five more kilograms? If trying to get them to that point means they lose all these other physical parameters that are going to be required of them. If it means you're going to increase their risk of injury exponentially. All right, so again, it, it becomes very complex. It also means, and you know, this is why I think the Australian Defence Force, Singapore, the Singapore Army, holy hell, you want to talk about a physical training program. 
see what those guys are doing. Wow. Um, or, you know, you're not the UK where you actually have people's job, soldiers who are trained, who have been soldiers, who are now trained to train the physical requirements of other soldiers. They understand what it's like when, you know what, hey, guys, we've got this beautifully paradise program. This is what you're coming in to do. But you've got the Queen's birthday parade. You're now going to be spending eight hours a day on the drill square for the next five days. So there goes your beautifully paradise structured program out the window. Okay, we turned up to do a pack march. What do you mean you're, you're training yesterday for a military skills competition and you had a pack on your back for 12 hours yesterday? Right, okay, we're going to have to change everything we've just come up with. Let's go for a recovery session because I know what that load would have done to you. I know what a military skills preparation uh, will require. Therefore, I know how to mitigate that. My training now isn't just going following a cookie cutter approach because it says it's this. It's now adapting to that environment and implementing a recovery session. That is what makes a true track, uh, tactical professional, somebody who can adapt to the requirements to optimize the outcome for the individual. Well, if you have any, uh, if you have any points of contact in Singapore, let us know. We were, this is, this is going to sound ridiculous. We were briefly for one day, like three weeks ago, the number 17 health and fitness podcast in Singapore. And I want to know why I want to know who discovered mobs and Mo's out there. And, and I'll also acknowledge that I'm taking a bunch of notes here because like you're, you're already in San Antonio for TSEC. I'll get there tomorrow, but you, uh, you got after a topic that I will be covering in my talk. Cause now I'm like rewriting like how I'm going to talk about it. So <laughs> this is perfect. You just, just let Rob do it for you. I'll tell you about Singapore. I run training for their army, for their physical training instructors. Uh, every year or so I go over there. And the reason for that is when I did my uh, army physical training instructor course, there were two Singaporean uh, army personnel on our course. So they flew over to do our army physical training instructor course to learn about how we run our course so they could run theirs. But not only did they do our course, they then went and did the course in the UK. And then they went and did the course in New Zealand. So these instructors had done three different military physical training instructor courses, taken that knowledge and then applied it in their, their area. The, the amount of time and effort and dedication they put to upskilling is, is amazing. The, some of the equipment they've got will blow your freaking mind. They, they've got huge forces. Obviously, it's conscription military. And they fitness test them. How do you fitness test that number? Well, you use things like kinetic. So it's a visual um, like laser system that measures your push-up, that measures your sit-up and goes not low enough, not low enough, not low enough. Count, count, count. Does it all automatically. So there's no personality bias. And they wear a little chip and it records it automatically straight to their chip. Then they go out and they do their 2.4K run around a track. And every time they do a lap, their result comes up. And they can see how fast they're running and they know how fast they have to go. And they just keep going, boom, finishes. As soon as it finishes, because it's on a chip, automatically uploads to the system. <laughs> it's, it's, they are. Ooh. I wonder about that stuff a lot because I think that's, that's great for like a mass production kind of assessment environment. And I know it's not just in the U S but there's this movement towards like these fantastic, well-appointed physical training facilities that look just like collegiate or professional weight rooms and things like that. But, and this, I'm going to like turn to your research here. Cause you, you talk a little bit about the, the like lack of proprioceptive ability for people to negotiate complex terrain. And I remember when I was at my basic officer course, we had a couple foreign officers that were going through it with us as well. And they were stunned by how much the U S army seemed to love running on paved roads. And, and it's true. Like everywhere I've gone in the U S army, we're all about paved roads and just running tons and tons of miles on them, which like 
clearly has a variety of issues, both from like overuse injuries and just like lack of preparation for the realistic environments you're going to end up in. And I'm biased. I think trail running is way more fun, but I think if we, if we go too far down the road of like these fantastic, beautiful weight rooms, we give up on the opportunity to train in the heat and to train on unstable terrain and to train in just realistic environments where we're going to operate. And I don't, I don't know, like, I think there's a pendulum effect there where we should probably provide great resources for good training, but we should also keep people in kind of the dirtier, rougher environments that they're actually going to operate in. You're hundred percent right. And it's a double pendulum. Firstly, the, the pendulum has now swung from that. Let's just get out there and run to, okay, you've done too much running. Let's just go to the weight room. So they've literally gone away from all running. Running is not important. It's all about strength and power. And they've shoved everything in the weight room. So they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. You look, the reality is, and we know that the research shows this. If you want to put it, contextualize it, think of a car. You need a strong body, a strong framework, and then you need a big enough engine to drive that body. So that big enough engine is your, your metabolic, your aerobic, your anaerobic fitness. That comes from running, from pack marching, from doing aerobic-based activities. But you need a strong, solid framework that comes from your strength. You know, your strength, your power training, your explosive training. You need both. So we've got to be careful that we don't go from one end of the you know, pendulum to the other. And now suddenly everything's done in the weight room. And again, you're 100% right here. We've got to be very cautious. So it's, let's face it. Nine times out of 10, you'd, you know, the average soldier would rather be in the gym in a pristine environment, slinging weights in their shorts and T-shirt than going out there stomping through mud with a pack on their back because it's freaking miserable. All right. It is. It sucks. But what is required and what builds that mental fortitude but suck? You know, the old embrace the suck, you know, that's mental fortitude. And, and that is something that comes from training in unpredictable Star, uh, austere environments. We've got to get back to being comfortable in the uncomfortable. And we're not. I don't, I don't even want to say that I'm playing devil's advocate because I agree with you, but I have seen, I have seen this play out in the extremes where one of the, one of the company commanders that I work with, I, I think he was a company commander. His policy was we are always training outside no matter what, because quote, we don't fight wars inside. And like, I get where he's coming from. However, I see the damage that could come into play if we go out there and say like, Hey, we got to go do David Goggins, Jocko shit 24 seven. Cause we're in the military. So I guess my question for you is, do you think that there is an appropriate way to phase that type of stuff in maybe throughout a year, depending on deployments, things that are predictable. And I don't want to call it periodization because we've bashed that enough on this podcast, but from a planning keyword planning perspective and Alex is laughing because we have fought this fight on social media before planning of training. Do you think there's ways to dose the quote unquote sports specificity piece of it without throwing out the gym stuff? Because you do need some of that throwing out the, you know, the zone to basic endurance stuff. Cause you do need some of that. Like, what does that look like for you both as a researcher and an actual tactical athlete being in the reserves? Look, I think, the reality is you need it all. You need to be able to run on pavement. You need to get out there and be able to run. You need to be able to put a pack on your back and hump it. You need to be able to go to the gym and sling weights. You need to be able to go into an austere environment and carry a freaking tire or stretch up the side of a mountain. You need it all. So train it all. Remember, we're not trying to make somebody that's elite in one thing. So give them diversity. You know, have as much variability in the training that you can. Why can't you do, a, you know, like a load carriage march on the Monday, 
on Tuesday, you do some good strength work. On Wednesday, you do a, a great recovery session. You, you play team games, all right? You play some fun, what we call in the military, we call them minor team games, you know, like throwing grenade socks into freaking holes and who gets points and you bash each other, murder ball, all that fun stuff. So you do that for a bit of camaraderie and as an act of recovery, you know, and then you do some combat PT. You know, why can't we do it all? And as you move towards different times of your training cycle, you know, if you're about to get ready to go out on a, a company exercise or a battalion exercise, brigade exercise, get deployed, then you move towards that specificity scale a little bit more. But when you don't need it, you can move away from it because quite often they'll be going away and upskilling. They'll be going away doing their refresh, their recalls. So again, we've got to be very careful of having to do one. Do it all. Freaking eat all the cakes rather than just having the one cake. Take a mouthful of each. Be that guy. Within that, do you think you are more successful when you do the least amount possible or the most amount you can handle of all of those things? You know what? Well, it's both. It depends because they, they should actually be very close to each other. You know, sometimes, you, you know what it's like. Sometimes you'll wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm ready to try and let's go sling some steel. And you go and have a great session. And sometimes you wake up and go, oh, geez, I couldn't, you know, run out of sight in a dark night. I just feel like crap. Well, then you do the bare minimum. When you feel good, push it. When you feel overworked, slow it down. Do enough just to keep moving. Um, you know, so you need both. This is it. You, this is why it's so complex. You need everything. You need to be able to train everything. And then you've got the mental side of it. You know, you've got to be able to be able, put a pack on your back and march in a straight line. The old saying, thumb and bum, mind and neutral, all right? Board shitless and go 80 kilometers with a pack on your back. That is mental fortitude. The only thing that keeps you going is your own brain. You're not listening to music. You're not singing songs. You know, you're not dancing the rain here. This is just a total making sure sheer force of will. I'm going to keep going. But you don't do that every day because you'll break and you'll get bored and you'll get burnt out. So you do something different. This is, this is probably a question you've been asked a million times and I have to ask it while we have Rob War on the podcast, but in terms of dosing this variety of things, your name seems to come up most often in terms of how often to do load carriage kind of stuff. Yeah. He's the ruck guy. <laughs> I'm the ruck guy. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about like what the prescription you found after all of this research on the topic tends to be? All right. Uh, so to collapse it down, basically I'll use, everyone knows the fit frequency, you know, the fit formula, frequency, intensity, time, type of training. All right, frequency. You want to have done some form of load carriage every seven to seven to 14 days. Best research is about seven to 10 days. But, you know, keeping a pragmatic, once every two weeks, you want to have walked around and carried load. So every two weeks, you've got to have load on your body. The intensity of that load needs to cover a variety of different aspects. And not all of them at the same time. So you don't add all your intensity parameters at the same time because you'll break. Intensity can come from the load weight but also it can come from the low speed of march. It can also come from the type of terrain you're carrying or you're covering. So what do you need? What is their combat weight required? All right. And how do I progress people to be able to confidently and comfortably carry that load progressively? So it may be that I get them to carry half their combat load, but I make them go faster. So every 0.5 kilometers of an hour increase in speed, that's the same metabolically as me giving you another 10 kilograms. Every 1% incline, is the same as me giving you 10 kilograms metabolically. So I don't always just have to add load. I could have the same load and go faster. I can have the same load and go up a hill. So I'll periodize my intensity. It doesn't always just have to be heavy, right? So there's your intensity. 
The time duration, well, again, it depends. We need everything. You might need a short explosive burst. You might need to be able to do your basic fire maneuver, get up, run down, crawl, observe, aim, fire, get up, do it again and again and again. So it may be short up and down explosive drills. That's your training session. However, it may be you need to do a 15K you know, uh, infill and you need to hump it, 15Ks. You may need to go set up a, a retrans site on top of a mountain. So you've got to you know, walk long distance. What is more required of your unit in their specific role? but train as much variability in the volume as possible. And then finally, the type of training. Biggest predictor of load carriage performance is load carriage performance. So you need to do load carriage. Once every you know, seven to 10 days, at least once every two weeks. Strength, and we're talking relative strength is the most important, uh, as well as aerobic capacity. Those are your two biggest predictors. So again, not just absolute strength, it's relative strength here. That's critical. So relative strength is critical for load carriage uh, and absolute strength would be critical for a victim drag. So guess what? You need both. But if you really want to focus on improving somebody's load carriage performance, you need to opt their, optimize their relative strength. And as you know, developing relative strength is different to absolute strength because if I maintain my absolute strength, but I lose body weight, I've increased my relative strength. So, you know, those are, those, that's the conditioning you need. Now, how you do that is also important. There's a thing that I call PICO, program and use cumulative overload. What else are they doing in the day? Are they out there spending four hours on a drill square, three or four hours in the sun doing weapon drills, and then they're going to come to you and you're going to do a load carriage event? Really? Is that the best way to go? Or are you just going to overcook them? How can you incorporate load carriage into their normal day? So one of the things we used to do in the battalions, which I used, I used to hate at the time when I was doing it, but now I think is one of the smartest things, is that every Monday would be a battle order Monday. So no matter what job you are doing, you could be the duty runner, you could be the duty driver, you could just be doing basic training, you could be doing, you know, uh, threat identification, tank identification, aircraft identification, who knows, whatever you're doing, you're in your battle order. So we call that patrol order, you're in patrol order all day, from when you uh, start to when you knock off, that is your load carriage. I don't need to go, you know, put it on and now hump it down the road, because I've just worn my load doing everyday activities. And the good thing about it is the nature of the activities are diverse. I'm standing up, I'm sitting down, I'm moving. So I get to feel my equipment and feel comfortable in my equipment, as opposed to just put it on with a set weight and hump in a straight line. So there's a variety of different ways you can do this. And if I go back to some of the great work done by Rudsky, here's some irony for you. Rudsky did this, this great research with the Australian army in 1989. And he had one platoon do running. So they did a lot of running. The other platoon, which happened to be my platoon when I joined, did nothing but pack marching. Starting to see a theme here. So <laughs> from the day I joined. So we were the pack marching platoon. And what they found out is if our load was heavy enough in our packs, we got just as aerobically fit as those that did the running. So uh, uh, the benchmark was a five kilometer run. We performed just as well on the five kilometer run as the running only platoon. But we performed better outfield because we were more comfortable with our equipment. So these second and third order effects are very, very important as well. So it's not just about putting it on and humping it. It's about getting comfortable in it because when you need it, uh, you need to be comfortable in your gear. You can't have any attention, uh, you know, taking up your bandwidth because you think about how uncomfortable this pack feels rather than scanning, you know, near, mid and far ground. It's, it's important. So it's very complex, but it's in many ways very simple. Carry load progressively without getting injured, but don't forget your strength and your endurance. Right? Do, you, do you find that the 
limiting factor for most folks as they try to improve their rucking? Do you find that it more often falls into the intensity camp, i.e. heavier and heavier weight holds them back or the duration camp, i.e. going longer is what's keeping them from succeeding? Uh, to be honest, it depends on the unit. Uh, and it sometimes depends on the individual. So, and what they're trying to do. If they're preparing like we used to do 80 kilometer pack marches. So, you know, the idea was, well, we'll do 15 kilometers a day every day for the next six months. And guess what? You'll be really good at doing 80 kilometers by the end of it. That was a little bit too much volume, probably. Um, <laughs> conversely, you also get the other side of the fence, particularly in training when they go, well, this is the operational requirement. You need to be able to carry this amount of weight. Let's start. You know, well, actually, you know, the reality is you've got 12 weeks of training. They probably shouldn't even be carrying operational loads after 12 weeks. And this is one of the biggest challenges I find in our defense force. And I'd say it's probably similar to many defense forces is we don't think along the lifespan of the soldier. All we think about is the block that we've got them. If we've got them for their basic recruit training, all I care about is how fit and how strong I can get you in my 12 weeks. If you break when you leave, that's your problem. But hey, when you left here, you were good to go. It's the other unit's problem. They must have broken you. Then you go to your core training, you know, your initial employment training, where you train to be infantry soldier, engineer, artillery, et cetera. Then they'll have you for their IET training phase. And their primary aim is to get you from whoever turns up, whatever you look like, and get you to the end and make you qualify. Anything after that's the unit's problem. So what we're doing is progressively overcooking people. Then they get to the unit and suddenly you've got a 20 year career ahead of you. You know, it's, it's, we don't think that, you know what, I don't need to make you the fastest rabbit in 12 weeks. I don't need to have you carrying operational combat loads in 12 weeks. What I do need is that by the time you get to your unit, they can start preparing you to carry combat loads because I have physically prepared you to get to that point. And we're getting better at it. The physical employment standards for Army, we're getting there. But I still think we need some element of a command that has complete oversight from sign-up to discharge. In fact, if I had my way, it'll be sign-up to veteran. So we now really can focus on the consequence of our training, the consequences of day one of recruit training, what it's going to mean to the veteran when they retire and their back stuffed and their knees are stuffed and they're in constant chronic pain. That oversight, I think, would be amazing. So that makes me think of two things that I've talked to people about recently. And one is we, we share absolutely the same problem, right? Like basic training is evaluated on how, what percentage of the people who arrive from recruiting graduate from basic training. And, and sometimes they will drag people to the finish line and send them off to their individual training somewhat broken already. And we have the data. If someone arrives at individual training already injured, their likelihood of ever getting to their unit plummets. And, and so that's a, a critical issue where, like you said, it becomes the next person's problem. And a piece of what makes that hard is that all the research we lean on as we like figure out what, what programs should be, because research tends to be over a short time period, they're going to find interventions that produce the largest effect size in that short time period without any real concern for the sustainability of that intervention, whether it works in the long term. Cause you don't, you don't actually want the biggest effect size in the shortest time period when you're training somebody, you want a sustainable effect size that you can keep repeating over and over again without breaking somebody. But it's really hard to design and follow through with research on a long enough time domain to do that in a realistic way. 
Yeah, you're 100% right, which is why you need a cell, you need an oversight that actually maps it out from zero to hero and beyond, and then influences along that entire chain of command. Um, and look, to be honest, I can understand some of the mentality. Uh, when I was in infantry and I got to the back end of my infantry training, I, I totally blew my knee out. And that meant because I blew my knee out, I couldn't do the march out parade. So I did everything else. I just couldn't do the little marching out parade at the end where they say, congratulations, you've made it. Because my knee was like the size of a freaking watermelon. Um, ended up with internal derangement of the knee. But I had a really good platoon sergeant. He said, look, we can back squad you and you'll be stuck in holding platoon and rehab and you know, you'll stay here for another six months. Or we can get you to your unit and you, you can rehab properly there, but still be part of your cohort and part of your unit. And the reality was that was probably the best thing for me mentally because I then got to stay with my unit. So, you know, passing me on to the unit earlier whilst I was still stuffed. And they were right. I got to the unit and it was just before stand down period. You know, I had just walked around and did duties and I recovered and I recovered well. And I was able to do another, you know, oh, geez, how long? 21 years, 22 years in the army, probably because of that sergeant's foresight. And going, you know, we lose a lot of people when we back squad and they get into a negative mindset and they've got to go, oh my God, I've got to do all this again. And so it does have that deleterious effect as well. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to, to reconcile. Um, and I, I don't know the best way out of that, around that yet, which is why I think we keep swinging back and forth in the pendulum. Also, just for the audience sake, he's referenced the 80 kilometer loaded march a few times. That's a 50 miler. So for anybody who's complaining about our here, like kilometers and what, I don't know, it's a lot. It's a anybody lot who's miles. complaining about our 12 miler, or even like if you're out there in like the Manchus or whatever, and you're doing your longer wrecks and stuff, I don't, I don't know a lot of units there. We have units out there that do it, but there's not a lot of units that are implementing regular 50 milers. Yeah. Look, that, that kind of went out uh, when that, when that commander went out, the only reason I referenced it so much, it was my bloody 21st birthday. <laughs> That's how I spent my 21st. That's a good uh, birthday present right there. Yeah. But we tend to, the furthest we'll typically do now in units is about 40, 40 kilometers. Um, and again, with about 40 kilograms worth of load. Uh, so. And that's, and that's still 24 miles. And 40 kilograms is a lot. That's nearly, uh, it's close to hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first time we did it, you see, because we, we used to do it every six months in the battalion. The first time we did it, I'm walking along, you know, we, we're all folded up. We're walking, we do it at a place called Greenbank. So it's a 20 kilometer ring road, basically. You just walk this ring road four times. So we're walking along and we just see these trails of water down the side of the road. We're looking up, you know, Tears. green sky, beautiful morning, walking along, walking along water, literally for 20 Ks. And then we found out that, you know, most people pack their pack with water bottles. And then about, you know, as they started walking, they just emptied out their water bottles, but they finished with a lot less weight. So, of course, the commander sees all this water the second time he's coming around. Where did all this water come from? And the next time we do it, he weighs you at the beginning and at the end of the event to make sure you've got your load. Um, but, yeah, so there you go. Do you – and this – I mean, I, I could be wrong here, but this is just your, your conventional infantry unit that's doing this, correct? Yeah. Do yeah, you guys – I realize that we are brushing up against large cultural differences in terms of obesity rates and that sort of thing. But in the Australian Defense Force, do you guys have much of an issue with folks not being able to meet the standards, fighting over PT tests and all that sort of stuff like we deal with here? Uh, look, to be honest, I'd say our, our problem isn't as great, but you've got to remember we're a smaller beast. 
um, we're a lot smaller. Our, our full-time forces of Australian Army is 27,500. Our entire ADF with reserves is about 86 to 88,000. That is it. So our selection can be a little bit more picky. We can be a little bit more choosy. Um, and we can have more consequence. You know what, if you don't pass your basic fitness assessment after you know, you've been given a suitable period of retraining, you're out. Thank you very much for coming. Um, but yeah, we, we do still have that, you know, some of those who are, uh, how can we say this nicely, politically correct? Not that have a large <laughs> That have a large amount of non-functional mass. And, <laughs> so, you know, but, but, and, you know, look, to be honest, I was a PTI and for me, my mindset at that stage, coming from infantry, being a physical training instructor was, you know, like two laps around my beautiful body here, people. You look like you didn't only eat your cake, you went into the cake shop and, and ate it out. Right? You are freaking cake eater. We need to get rid of you. Until I had a commander, I had a commander turn around to me and go, well, well, no, because yes, she's got a BMI of 36, but her logistics management is flawless. She gets all the troops where they need to go with everything they need every time without fail on time. So she was mission critical. So, yeah, you know what? She may have had a huge BMI, but her skill set was, they didn't want to get rid of her for somebody who can run a bloody marathon, but, you know, you turn up one place and the bullets turn up somewhere else and you don't get any food. So, again, there's this really interesting nuance, and I found this becoming more prevalent in my work with uh, paramedics. Paramedics, their primary skill set is their medical knowledge and their clinical skills, not their fitness. Yes, they need to be fit because it's important for their job. But would you rather have somebody come up and treat you who's, you know, morbidly obese, but their clinical skills are flawless or somebody that can out, outbeat a rabbit and doesn't know where, what to do when they get to you? So there's got to be this trade-off. Um, and, of course, you can go the other way as well. As Yes, this, this female officer, her logistics was flawless. My concern is then, you know, what are health and well-being going to like? going to be like how long is she going to be able to last on the job but you know my credit to the commander the commander said no we're not getting rid of her we will keep fighting to get her fit and it took about 10 years until she passed a fitness test and she actually maintained her fitness guess what she still got everybody where they needed to go on time on task so i think just having a physical metric can be dangerous i think the physical metric needs to be aligned to their job task performance and their skill set because We've seen it happen on, on special forces selection. We're not necessarily the fittest are the ones that get selected because it's pretty easy just to sh shut your brain off, not care about anybody else and smash yourself through. Yeah, this, I mean, I've been talking on my page a little bit recently about we, we tend to make measurable things important rather than make important things measurable. And this, this does a little bit come full circle to something you were talking about at the beginning which like this, this search for the Holy grail, that is the tactical strength and conditioning paradigm. Mm. But, but despite the fact that like we know all the things that make tactical unique in terms of the chaos and the unpredictability and things like that, there's, there's also a lot more heterogeneity between one tactical professional and another than there is between like different positions on a sport team. There's like you said, like a logistics professional, how important fitness is for a military logistics professional is different than how important fitness is for an infantryman is different than how important it is for somebody who's working in the cyber space and, yeah. and all of those roles are important and how relevant fitness is and what types of fitness are very different too. I don't, 
Yeah. You're hundred percent. There's right. more correlation. There's more correlation between aerobic fitness and cognitive ability than there is between strength and cognitive ability. So you might be more interested in the aerobic capacity of somebody whose job is more cognitive and you might be more interested in the strength of an artilleryman. Like it just, there's so much variety that I don't even know if there is one tactical paradigm, even if we got there. That's right. And we even divide them up into what we call, you know, um, your kinetic personnel and cyber personnel for want of another word. We don't have a better word for it yet. So your kinetic personnel, they're on their feet all day. You know, quite often what they don't need is more physical conditioning. What they need is, de uh, you know, deloading and active recovery. Then you've got those that are sedentary all day. You need to get them up. You need to get them moving. Your primary problem with them isn't going to be their fitness. It's going to be their health. So why you'll do fitness for them is to maintain their health, whereas for kinetic personnel, it's for their performance. So you've got two totally different goals that you're aiming for. Look at Navy personnel stuck on a ship all day. Do you really need them to be so strong they can lift a parked car? Or do you need them to be healthy so they can survive being on a ship without getting sick, without getting ill, and be able to do their primary tasks? Well, again, it depends on what job they're doing. You know, are they bosun's mates? Are they required to go up and down stairs? Are they required? Are they on the, uh, you know, the uh, four S's, uh, survivability and, and all that sort of stuff, where they, if something goes pear-shaped, they've got to put on the fly suit and hump a okaba and, and put out a fire all over the ship? Or do they just need to sit down and man a freaking radar terminal all day? Yeah. I know we've talked about fitness tests and all that, and, and do we even need fitness tests? Do we not, like... But I guess what I'm what I'm curious about, especially you with more of an international perspective, like if you were to get rid of, let's just say we get rid of PT tests, because in the corporate space, you don't have PT tests. People still succeed. You don't I mean, you kind of have PT tests in the sports world, combines and whatnot, but you still select for the best. Do you see a need for the PT test? And if not, do you think that in order for that to be successful, you then have to be a little bit more cutthroat with your standards? I mean, how do you think that those things kind of play together? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. Um, I think fitness testing is important. I think health testing is just as important, by the way. Um, so fitness and health testing is important, but I think my preference would probably be for a traffic light system. And it's more as an educational piece. You know what? You've been eating too many cakes. Uh, you're getting slow. You're putting on a lot of non-functional mass. You need to get your butt into gear and you need to condition yourself. You know what? You're a green light. You're doing well. You can meet the basic requirements of doing your key occupational tasks. You want to go, you know, be a triathlete? Go for it. You want to go play football? Go for it. Um, but yeah, you can meet your basic set. Hey, you're redlining here. That means you're an occupational risk, whether it be to yourself or the rest of your team, you need a directed intervention. And you will comply, otherwise we'll kick you out as a risk. Um, I think a continuum is important. We need, we, we know that if, if you've got a fitness test, soldiers will train for that test because they want to pass it. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, one of the smartest things are really, a, a, you know, a science meet, meets the road moment for me was when I was doing some work for our special operations command, we actually went out and, and measured a whole bunch of fitness parameters. And then we looked at those that passed SAS selection. So they started with about 120 and ended up with like 14. And we're going, okay, so what physical parameters predicted success? And you know, your key ones predicted success, but things like agility, uh, flexibility, had nothing to do with success. And I was going, well, okay, we can get rid of all these tests and we can just keep these ones because these are the, the critical ones that'll let you know whether or not they're going to be able to survive at the other end. Keep these as your barrier. And the commander said, oh, hell no. 
you know, because if these are the only tests that are required, these are all they're going to train for. Whereas if I at least make them think they've got to do uh, agility, they've got to do flexibility, they will train it. And I went, of course, <laughs> you know, totally different mindset that the practical science says these are superfluous to predict survivability. So don't have them on the barrier. But the pragmatic approach from the commander was, well, actually, we know they only train for their tests. So guess what? I'm going to add all these elements into the test to make sure they do some flexibility, they do some agility. And that was a real light bulb moment for me. So I know we're getting close to the hour mark and don't want to keep you too long, but I will ask. So you lead the, the tactical research unit at Bond University. What, like, what's some of the coolest research that has come out recently? And what is on the horizon for cool stuff that we can look forward to from Ooh, you guys? Coolest stuff. Right. Some stuff we're doing isn't cool, but it's cool for me. Right. Um, so right now we're doing a lot of stuff with our veterans, looking at the occupational loads that you sustain whilst you're serving in the military. All right. And what that means to you becoming a veteran, particularly when you put in uh, medical claims. So one of the, the biggest problems we have, and I, you see these memes all over the Internet, you know, where you've got a soldier carrying a big, heavy pack and it says, you know, no, your back, bad back and sore knees are not, not service related. Well, what we're actually doing is mapping out against what we call the statement of principles and, um, uh, you know, certain things that we know to increase your risk of these characteristics like osteoarthritis of the low limbs, like spondylolisthesis of the lumbar spine. We map out what is part of training and what soldiers do. And in fact, it's across the entire tri-services. So it's uh, soldiers, it's Air Force personnel and it's Navy personnel. We map what they do as part of their job. And then we look at the exposure lists. So in future, when if everything goes the way we want it to go, and we're working with our Department of Veterans Affairs, who are absolutely amazing, they'll be able to log in, they'll put their service number in, it'll pull out their service history and go, okay, well, you've automatically met, met all these, what they call straight through processing. So rather than it being on the soldiers trying to say, okay, well, can you please show me how in the last 10 years, uh, you've carried over 10,000 kilograms? You go, well, can you please show me how in the last, you know, where there's been a period of at least two years where you've climbed up and down 150 stairs per day? So like, oh, hell, when we were mapping this out, I went back to our recruit training and I was going, holy hell, where'd all these stairs come from? Because when you're going through as a recruit, you don't remember that. You just remember somebody growling down the back of your head all the time. And you're so scared of being out of step that you don't, you don't even know what ground you're going over. And, you know, you're running up and down in and out of your barracks so often doing whirlwind drills and whatever. And you just don't want to be late. That you don't even realize how many stairs you're going up and down. So we clocked them at doing well over two to 300 stairs a day without even realizing it. So, you know, so that's one of the cool things that we're doing at the moment. And I'm really proud of the work we're doing with, with the team there. We're doing some stuff with uh, some of our specialist police. Oh, these guys are batshit crazy. It's great. Um, so they're doing, we're doing a lot of the stuff with their selection. And, and wow, some of the stuff we're getting on heart rate variability is absolutely mind-blowing. So like we had this one candidate who, no matter what you did to him, you know, except for when you woke him up with the flashbang, apart from that, his, his heart rate, his heart rate variability was freaking awesome. But then one of the, the, the things they do is a, um, a fear of heights assessment. So they get them to do a fast rope. And he was cool and calm when he was talking to the instructors and he did it. But his heart rate variability just went poof. And that was it. It was like, wow, this is what's taxed this one operator out. You know, and he was cool and calm. But on the inside, <laughs> he, was, he was gassed. This, this is the thing that destroyed him. Um, we're looking at them, them going into like a, a Rio sort of cycle now, and we're seeing who gets through. And those that have maintained a good heart rate variability are the ones that are actually getting through training because there's less cognitive and physical demand on their body. So they, 
able to continuously learn information and get better and better and better um, and not make the same mistakes over and over. So which sort of makes sense. We know that glucose and glycogen is the only, well, glucose is the only fuel source for the brain. It's the only energy system that can cross the blood-brain barrier. So if you're burning all that up in your muscles all day, every day, and you're becoming depleted, you're not going to concentrate. You're not going to think you're going to make errors. Therefore, you're going to fail your weapons assessments. You're going to fail all these other skills they give you more often. So we're playing with that. That's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of PhD students doing crazy stuff. Uh, we're doing, we've got one in Germany who's looking at movement patterns. So how do you use movement patterns to uh, orientate yourself towards different types of threats? So both in person and then doing it through CCTVs. So how to pick up the problem in the crowd? What do you look for? How to identify that? But more importantly, how do you then train that gut feel? So that's some of the work that Sandra's doing. Uh, we've got Kiwi Nathan, who's ex-serving as well, who's now looking at the difference between proficiency and competency. So, you, oh, yes, you're competent in your weapon. Oh, that's great. Are you proficient in your weapon? Can you actually hit what you're trying to shoot consistently well all the time? Or can I pass my weapons test because I wrote learn? Um, so, you know, he's looking at measures of that. How do you measure proficiency as opposed to competency? So that's, he's doing that on use of force and marksmanship. I can go on. We've got another 12 and one's doing it on heart rate variability. One's looking at overt versus covert body armor and the differences in body armor, uh, what that means for performance. Uh, what else we got? We've got we've got one who's just finished it on training loads and uh, looking at mapping training loads and whether or not that can actually predict the risk of injury. He did that with the LA sheriffs. Great bit of work that he's done there. We've got an ex-LA sheriff, uh, Lieutenant Joe Duller, who's doing his work on optimizing conditioning for law enforcement. Uh, so he's cracking on. We've got the amazing Mark Stevenson who's doing his stuff on stress inoculation. And Whitney's looking at uh, stress and performance in Air Force personnel. So we're doing a lot of stress and performance-based stuff. Uh, we've got one doing nutrition, uh, but nutrition for law enforcement officers. So how can we optimize healthy eating for law enforcement officers when you know they, they're in their car for eight to 12 hours of the day? The car gets hot. You can't have fresh food in there because it's going to cook. You've, you can't really sit there and have a meal in your car. Um, so what options does that leave you? And in fact, there, there's a police station in Australia that built this amazing atrium uh, with a, a chef-designed kitchen. Absolutely amazing. And when we were in there doing some work with them, we saw all the officers, you know, eating um, burgers at their desk. And I went, guys, you know, what's the go? You've got, he goes, I don't have time. I need to get this report done so I can knock off. And the good thing about a burger is I can stick it in one hand and I can type with the other. <laughs> so, you know, again, so the, the concept of if you build it, they will come didn't meet the practical application. I don't have time to go and cook a five-star meal. I want something that I can eat while I work. And guess what? 99% of the time, that's not the best choice of food. And then you've got to look at what's open at the end of the shift. I can tell you what, your fresh food market is not open at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. So if you want to go get some fresh fruit, you're going to have to pre-plan it. So it's, yeah. So that, that's some fun stuff we're playing with as well. I was just looking at it. I don't know if you saw it, Drew, but Fort Bragg posted their like defect schedule, dining facility schedule across the whole installation. And I can't imagine anybody has the bandwidth to like chart that whole thing out and figure out which dining facility is open at which time on which day. And like, is it doing full operations or partial operations? And like, do they have a midnight meal or do they not have a midnight? Like there's just, 
I think conven- convenience is an underrated factor in providing food to tactical professionals. This brings up this brings up a question that I have to ask Rob as a we'll call you a foreign military expert. Do you guys <laughs> do you guys in Australia have fast food and insta- have fast food restaurants on military installations? We don't have chain fast food restaurants at all. We do have we do have however what we call the, the like a either it's a Sally man's club or a one store where you can go get, uh, do you have a gas station? on base? Basically I'm on a one man vendetta to figure out why we have, we'll call it an obesity issue in the military. And the only food within walking distance for most of these soldiers is fast food. It blows my mind. And you as an Australian, I, I had to ask. So thank you for answering that question for me. Yeah, that's all right. But you know, it's it's not, again, it's not just in the US. So at our Royal Military College, we've got on base. We've got, a, ironically, the nickname of it is the Fat Shack or, or the Grassy Knoll, because uh, there's a bit there's a bit of grass and knoll. And you know, when on occasion, so they don't do it every meal. On occasion, they might go out because you know what you want. They they've got beautiful, healthy salads and all that as well. They've got you know, you make your own salad bar and all that sort of stuff. But on occasion, that's where they'll go and get some junk food. Um, but it got to the point where we actually, as physical training instructors there, we caught them driving down from their lines 800 meters to go to the fat shack. We're going, you, if you're going to eat it, you may as well at least walk to it. You know? <laughs> um, so that was one of the things that, that made us smile. But yeah, typically we don't have any you know, restaurant or fast food chains or anything on, on any of the bases. Um, so that's, that's, one of, that's one of our benefits, I guess. But I'd say rather than you know, obesity in, in the, the military issue, I'd say it's an obesity in society issue. And ironically enough, one of our uh, master's students who's just finished, she was an ex-army physical training instructor, became a school teacher, and she's looking at um, pack loads of school children. And in fact, some of our school children are carrying the same loads that soldiers are carrying on deployment. How's that? <laughs> in, in their school bag. So the reason we're looking at that is, well, what sort of load carriage history do they end up with when they join? So yes, many of them have a solid load carriage history already, but they also have all those associated injuries before they've even joined. So, you know, these are the problems. And we found that when we mapped, this is a study we did as, as when I was at the Royal Military College as a human performance officer there, we mapped out the fitness level of 15-year-old males. And then we looked at them when they were 18 years old. And we looked at that 18-year-old population against those that were joining. And you could literally see the wave cycle. So whatever, whatever was in schools, 15 years uh, at, at the age of 15 years was exactly what we were getting. So you've got to look at what you've got. So you've got in, reduced physical activity in schools, in many schools, poorer lunch choices often, less physical activity, as I said. Um, and because of that, you've got less gross and fine motor skills, which is also what we're finding because now they're not going out and playing sport. Even if they can go out, they'll be on their devices. Add to that the more sedentary nature caused by the school requirements as well. So particularly the back end of school is very, very academically focused. And all they get told is you need a good grade if you want to go into college or, you know, if you want to get the best colleges or if you want to make something of your life, you need good grades. So what do you think they do for the last three or four years of school? They literally sit at a computer and study. They do very little physical activity. Then they join the military straight after that and they'll be walking. You know, when I first did the study, it was seven and a half kilometers a day. Uh, Professor Joe Knappick looked at it in the US and it was about 11 and a half kilometers a day. Uh, Dr. Jace Drain, and again, working with the Australian Army, has found out it's about, from memory, about 14,000 steps a day. So they go from doing very, very little physical activity, suddenly doing 14,000 steps a day every day for 80 days. 
Then you add physical training, sleep deprivation, poor nutritional choices, all that on top of it. And you wonder why we break them during training. So now we've got a reduced recruitment pool of people that are physically fit. We're breaking them in training because they are so unfit, but our training practices haven't changed, can't change because our end state's still the same. And th this is the product of society. So I think until we change what's happening in schools and in terms of society, what comes out of schools is what you're going to have to take into the military because you've got to reduce pool size density that you can draw from. And you still need people to serve. True. We're going to have to get like a school teacher or a school administrator on here at some point soon. Cause it, it this continues, is Alex's favorite topic. Alex it continues to infuriate me that like we have I hate plenty, fast food. Alex hates school kids that are out of shape. We have, we have plenty <laughs> of research on the influence of physical activity on your ability to learn and your ability to focus and all oh, these yes. things like they're inextricable. You cannot just study your way to better grades. You have to have like a balanced kind of approach. Nobody can sit still for eight hours and just constantly absorb knowledge in any kind of functional way. Yet, like despite tons of research validating that, all of our schools are moving that direction where they cut recess, they cut music, they cut art, they cut anything that gets you moving around at all. And they want the kids sitting there for six to eight hours straight, theoretically absorbing knowledge when you, we know full well that no adult can do that effectively. I just don't, I don't understand. Like we, we have so many cool success stories of physical activity in school children improving grades. And we know that despite tons of resources, America is kind of falling behind on the international stage, especially in terms of STEM. It, I just don't, it's, it's unbelievable to me that we're not investing in ways to get school age children more physically active. This makes me think, Rob, a question for you, because I mean, you're, you are so invested in research, but you're also obviously being in the reserves, being involved in the military. Do you find oftentimes that you are butting your head up against the wall because you can objectively show that something is false or true, but key leaders, key decision makers are sitting there looking right back at you and saying, well, we aren't going to fix anything. Even though you can show them it is the wrong thing for them to go down door A and they insist on doing it. Does that happen often, often for you? See, see why I've got no hair? Yeah, I'm guessing <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> Look, it's it's a, and look, but to be to be fair, I'd say I'm not unique. I'd say that you know what, almost every soldier I know, regardless of what job they were doing, has had to bang their head against the wall and go, "Why won't they listen to me?" And we can go back in history, probably to you know um, those poor Roman legionnaires uh, when they got told that you know they now get to have to carry everything because this is the first documented case of politicians making soldiers carry more load. Uh, Gaius Marius said, you know, we're wasting too much money on these pack mules that are carrying the soldiers load. Make the soldiers carry it. Um, there ah, you go. Politicians getting involved. Yeah. Um, but they'd be banging their head on the wall going, doesn't he understand what this means? Um, so, yeah, you, you do get frustrated. Uh, but again, I always, the, the thing that I remember that I focus on is, yeah, okay, this is my small little pixel that I'm trying to work on. The commander's got 500 other pixels from the top looking down. You know what? At the moment, they don't have enough qualified operators in the you know, Australian Defence Force. What am I going to do? I'm going to have to drop my standard. I need somebody in. And you know what? If that means we break three out of every four we get, at least I'll still have one that's not broken because I need somebody here to be at the sharp end. So that's a risk that they're going to be willing to accept because that's the focus. You know, I need somebody to be behind the gun to pull the trigger. Gun triggers at this stage don't pull themselves. So I need this person. So look, I know that I'm going to break a lot of them. I know they're probably going to be screwed for the rest of their life. But what I need right now 
to be operationally effective and protect our country is X. So I, I, I do appreciate the fact that there are reasons bigger and beyond, but sometimes it's like, just for once, just, just once listen to me, see what happens. But again, however, I will also say that there have been times when commanders have listened, listened to me. Brigadier Simone Wilkie, uh, Brigadier Mark, 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 Mark from Iraq, that was his nickname. Because uh, he <laughs> passed from Iraq, he was absolutely amazing. Mark Bornholt. So, you know, we did a lot of work for them. We put in a lot of information and they made changes and they ended up winning awards on, you know, safety awards for, you know, in, in increasing not only safe transition from re recruit training all the way, or sort of from officer training all the way through, but also um, return to training for injured um, cadets. So there are commanders that, that do listen and see the value of it. Uh, I think the biggest problem and the biggest challenge is the two-year, three-year posting cycle. Because as you start to make traction, new commander comes in and you feel like you're starting again and you're starting again and you're starting again. But as I told you about with my story at the beginning, you know, one of my commanders years later said, you know, Rob, come back, do some work for me here. So obviously when I was there, that commander for that two to three years, it had an impact. And she invited me and the, the, the YPTI at the time, Glenn Morby, back to help look at training injuries. And that led on to another commander who said, hey, Rob, come work for us, who then called me back again. So I think it, it, we're getting there. Slowly but surely, we are getting there. Uh, and I think it's like eating a, not, not even an elephant, a bloody woolly mammoth. It's, it's one small <laughs> mouthful at a time. Very, very small. Tastes bad, right? It's bitter and twisted. But I think we are making slow progress. It's just slow. <laughs> It's annoying. I want it to be faster. <laughs> but, you know, as long as we go forward a little bit, I'm happy. I don't know if that's depressing or hopeful, but I'll, <laughs> I'll choose to interpret it hopefully. And it's good to it's close. A good on close. Like it's that. a good close. The yeah. woolly mammoth metaphor is a good close. I will say that. <laughs> yeah. It's making small, small steps, but it's bitter and twisted because they're not bigger steps. <laughs> but at least, at least you're getting a mouthful of woolly mammoth when you could be starving, I guess. I don't that's know. a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> Well, Rob, thank you for your time. I know you've flown all the way. Obviously, you didn't fly over to the States to be on this podcast, but we can pretend. Thank you for coming to America. I only, to only came over here for you guys. Do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I appreciate it. And have fun at TSAC. I know, Alex, you guys will link up there. I'm missing out. I'm a loser. Whatever. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Alex, I thought we, we weren't going to tell him. <laughs> I'm going to zoom in for something. Perfect. All right. Oh, yeah.